Hi everyone, welcome back to Andy's Treasure Trove. It's great to be back. You're listening to the music of Candace Roberts, a very smart, funny, and lovely young singer who's a new acquaintance of mine and whom we're all going to get to know in person together when I talk with her in a future episode of Andy's Treasure Trove. Candace's delightful new album, Honeymoon for One, is available now and you can learn more at candaceroberts.com. You know, my fondest wish for this podcast is to make it more of a collaborative effort with you, my devoted audience. And that's why I have a listener call-in phone line that you can call anytime to leave a voicemail message with your comments, questions, and contributions to the show. Here's the number. Please write this down. 415-508-4084. I hope you'll call that number soon and often, and that you'll also tell your friends about the show. In the last dozen episodes of this show, there's been an emphasis on filmmakers, writers, politics, along with some audio adventures exploring some of the more interesting places in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. The next two or three episodes of Andy's Treasure Trove are going to be devoted to the performing arts. In today's episode, I'll be talking with a man who's not known as a performer. He's famous for giving some of the biggest entertainers in popular culture their start. His name is Manny Roth, And in the 1960s, he had a very famous cafe and nightclub in Greenwich Village, New York City, called Café Hua. (laughs) That's spelled with a W-H-A and a question mark. That helped catapult acts like Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Bill Cosby, Richard Pryor, Jimi Hendrix, and many, many others to fame and fortune. Surely you've seen movies where at some point the characters go downstairs into a subterranean, smoke-filled nightclub filled with beatniks and hipsters listening to poetry readings and folk music. Well, Manny Roth is the guy who basically invented that whole scene. He'll tell us all about that in just a minute, after I tell you about a special contest for this episode. When you're listening to my interview with Manny, at some point he'll mention a special kind of bread that he makes for his children and grandchildren. Simply call my listener call-in line and say the name of that special bread, and you'll be eligible for a drawing, and the winner will receive a brand new Apple iPod Nano. What? You didn't write down the phone number and now wish that you had? Well, you can find it on andystreasuretrove.com on the page titled Participate. Good luck, and I hope you are the winner of the iPod. And now my interview with Manny Roth, who spoke to me over the phone from his home in Ojai, California. No, before we start, uh, I want you to know I never let facts stand in the way of a good story here. Okay, we'll we'll take that disclaimer into account. And uh, an, an, another uh, disclaimer: I don't consider my life a big deal. I, uh, it's uh, mostly uh, uh, waste time and energy. And my genius is I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, that's uh, so. From there, you know, ask me what you want to know, and I'll I'll see if I can fill in a few few blanks for you. Well, thanks. Well, I understand that you started out in Indiana in a small town. Yeah, my parents were immigrants. Mom, uh, mom, and dad were of, uh, uh, were from uh, the old country. Uh, dad was from uh, Kiev. Uh, that's in Russia. Mom was. From uh, what's now Lithuania, but back then it was Poland. She was from uh, town, uh, uh, Vilna, and they were, it was a marriage of convenience. 
Dad came here, and uh, he had a uh, horse and wagon, and he used to travel around the countryside and selling whatever it, uh, he could uh, he could make a buck on. And he started out. He sold uh, he sold eyeglasses, and Dad uh, told me that uh, his one secret was he would knock on on a farmhouse door and. Uh, they would uh, try on a, a lot of glasses. There was there were no instruments. They would try on until they found a, a pair they could see with, and they would say how much. And Dad would say one dollar, and they said I'd, I'd take them. And Dad would say for one one lens. <laughs> so so anyway, uh, they ended up in a little town in Indiana by the name of uh, Newcastle. And it was an industrial town, uh, blue-collar farmers, and they had a Chrysler plant there to make Chrysler, Chrysler part. And uh, that was the heart and the soul of, of the town. It was a town of about 10,000. And, and when the uh, Chrysler part plant uh, was going, uh, the town was up. When the uh, Chrysler plant uh, uh, was down, and it was up and down a lot, depending. It was seasonal. Of course, this was back in the 20s and the early 30s. I was born in 1919, November 25th, around Thanksgiving. And uh, I knew the value of a penny. Yeah, I remember my mom taking me to school on the first day. And she walked me across the street. And uh, went to basic uh, school in uh, Indiana. That's grade school and junior high and uh, high school in uh, Indiana. And from there, I went to Indiana University for a year, and I didn't like it. So I told the folks that I wanted to get away from home. So uh, I didn't have any major plans about what I wanted to do. And I... Uh, had an aunt down in uh, Miami, and I didn't even know if they had a college uh, down there. So I took the chance, and I went down to Miami, and lo and behold, there was the there was the uh, uh, beginnings of uh, the University of Miami. So I went graduated from the University of Miami, and probably the most defining moment in the. Uh, at the University of Miami, well, it was a very tiny school back then. I don't think they had a thousand, fifteen hundred students back then. But I wanted to take a writing course, and I had gone down there at midterm, and they didn't have any creative writing course. But they suggested that I take a a playwriting course, and uh, I did. And out of a class of about thirty. Uh, they picked uh, my one-act uh, play, uh, three. They picked three one-act plays, and mine was one of them to uh, produce. And that was really a defining moment for me for, because I saw, I saw something that I'd written come alive on, on, on stage, and that was exciting for me. I'm not saying it was a good play, uh, but it was, uh, it was a, uh, a big moment in my life. And uh, I've been trying to uh, uh, write, uh, write in the playwright form 
my, since then, my whole life, off and on, up and down, in and out. And uh, from the University of Miami, I went into service. I volunteered for the for the Air Corps. Now, how did you choose the Air Corps? Well, because they had to have the best-looking uh, uniforms. I mean, uh, with those, I mean, who could beat that uniform there? With the with the wings and the uh, and the fifty mission hat and the uh, and the the whole karma and uh, a, gl- a glamour of the, of the Air Corps and the Air Corps back then was like um, oh how can I say it was very dramatic back then it was different than it is today today you take the Air Corps for granted that you know another branch of the service. But back then, it was uh, wasn't a separate service. It was the Army Air Corps, and the Navy Air Corps, and the Marine Air Corps, and uh, and so on. And uh, I volunteered for the Army Air Corps. This was during the war, and I went in in the early forties, and I washed out as a pilot, which was a a sad day for me. I wanted to be a pilot. But I did solo, and I had about 12 hours of solo time uh, in those two, uh, two-seater two open cockpit uh, bi-wing uh, trainers. And, you know, like those Snoopy airplanes. And um, so that I'm kind of proud of. And uh, they sent me to navigator school. From there, uh, I became a navigator, and I was a navigator on a B. 17 for uh, not a complete tour, but uh, 17 missions, and uh, they were trying to shoot my ass out of the sky, and luckily they, yeah, they missed. And after the war, I volunteered to stay over because I was interested in the uh, in the uh, theater, and they had an opening with uh, soldier shows. I volunteered to take over the. Europe staging center for all the Europe uh, USO shows, and uh, I was stationed in Wiesbaden for a year at the old Wiesbaden uh, Opera House, and I had about twenty-eight kids uh, uh, under me. I was the only commissioned officer there, and uh, we sent uh, yeah, they sent us all the uh, entertainment uh, things from. Uh, uh, all the entertainment units from from the states, and we sent them around uh, Europe. There, this was after after the war, but there were still an awful lot of troops there, and they needed entertainment. And uh, we were the key uh, depot there of uh, of the entertain entertainment unit. We had uh, what's her name? Uh, this lady who used to see in the uh, let's see, what's her name? Um, oh, when the moon comes up. Uh, Kate Smith. Uh, yeah, Kate Smith. Yeah, yeah. I remember Kate. Kate Smith uh, was there. We were staging the show. The MC uh, came out on stage in front of an audience. We had uh, we had the Beesfaden Opera House, and we filled it up with an audience. And he said, "Now we're going to plug into Kate Smith." And he brought down the house. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, I uh, 
I used to goof around with the uh, with the troops there. Well, he, it was kind of it was a very loose command because it was after after the war. We had our own dining area there. They they would call me up on on the phone and and say this is General So and So, and I would say fuck off or something. And and one day the general did call, and I told him to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and they, uh, that that's when I left Visa Visbad. I was there about a year, but Visbad was uh, uh, like all of Germany at the time. It was completely wasted. There weren't uh, any, uh, weren't many buildings left standing in Germany, in Toto, uh, and uh, uh, Visbad was. Uh, was completely wasted too, and uh, it didn't take any money to live in in Germany after the war. Uh, you lived uh, cigarettes were worth a couple hundred dollars a uh, a cart, and that was the currency. So when I came home after the war, I had about two hundred uh, two thousand dollars saved up that I hadn't collected. And I didn't have anything better to do, so I opened an Army Navy goods store in Muncie, Indiana. You you've heard of Muncie, haven't you? At this point in the conversation, Manny's wife called on another line, and he was off the phone for a few minutes. And when he returned, he told me a little bit about his life now in Ohio. We were married when she was twenty-six, and I was sixty, and. Uh, and she uh, is Filipino, a little Filipino girl. And she's everything that I'm not. And it, it was at a low point in my life. I was the king of the hill for a number of years. And then all of a sudden, sitting on my ass at the bottom of the hill, looking up. And the gods are laughing at me. And, uh, and they're looking down there and they say, look at that poor schmuck manny down there. And uh, then one of the gods took pity on me, and he said, "Let's give the poor bastard a break." So, so they sent my wife down and said, "Take care of Manny for a while." And that, that's that's a true story, and and that's the way it all started. And we've been uh, together for approximately thirty thirty years now, and every day it gets a little sweeter. Now, that's the best story I can tell you. But uh, all I remember about about the war and and the missions was that uh, I was scared. I wasn't any John Wayne, believe me. And uh, it was scary up there. And uh, yet I guess you, you carry that over. I still have uh, flashbacks. Uh, Today, and I'm 89 already, and I still have dreams, you know, scary dreams about that phase of my life. But uh, I don't worry about that. I, I wake up to a good world, and uh, I'm a lucky, a lucky mother, I'm, I'm here to tell you. The bottom line is I, uh, I feel good. I'm in the gym every day. I do my laps every day in the pool, and... Uh, there isn't uh, anything uh, you can do that I can't do. I understand you have a, a secret, powerful breakfast drink that you've had every morning for decades. Well, I call, 
Well, it's my goop. I put in a bunch of, but I eat what farm animals eat. I, yeah, I make up a, a bunch of stuff with whole grains and, and frozen fruit and, and protein powder and soybeans and sunflower seeds and a lot of nuts and, and dried fruits. I just make it up as I go along. And uh, when I bake it, I give it to my kids. I, I can either drink it or I can bake it. And when I bake it, they call it fart bread. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> uh, well, you have to ask my son. <laughs> um, yeah. What do you use for liquid when you make it into a drink? Oh, I, I just put in yogurt and I put in a little bit of orange concentrate and and a couple of ice cubes and and uh, a little bit of water and or soy milk or and uh, I just mix it up in the blender till I find a taste that I can I can tolerate and a big slug of that'll carry you all week. Well, all week. Wow. <laughs> no, it, it, don't mind if I exaggerate a little bit here. <laughs> oh yes, that's right. I remember the disclaimer. Yeah, but after the war, I didn't have anything better to do. So a friend of mine uh, uh, who had a connection with uh, uh, Army surplus goods in Cincinnati opened an Army-Navy store, and I did likewise in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Muncie. I took my $2,000, and I opened a store, and I eked out a little bit of a living there. Well, I had it about six, seven years. And my mom and dad helped me out, and uh, my sister, who later became a lawyer, uh, helped me out. Oh, I, uh, oh, the most important thing I have to tell you about my family is that mom and dad, uh, immigrants remember now, dad had an accent, a Russian accent, but uh, they worked their asses off. We had six kids. I'm number two. There were four boys and six girls, and they sent us all through college. Mom and Dad, these, uh, they, were, they worked, uh, yeah, I'm telling you, they worked uh, side by side in this blue-collar town for most of their lives, and they sent us all. And two of my brothers became surgeons. My sister became a, uh, a lawyer, and uh, uh, my oldest brother became... Uh, became wealthy uh, 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 in uh, department stores up near Chicago. He had uh, he ended up uh, with department stores. And did I miss anybody? I... Yeah, what happened to little Manny? <laughs> oh, myself. I was the wild card. I was the black sheep, sheep in the bone. Anyway, after about uh, six years in the Army-Navy goods store, I was... Uh, in my late 20s already, going on 30. And uh, I got fed up with the Army-Navy goods store. And I told the folks I wanted to go to the uh, uh, American Theater Wing on the GI Bill at the time. And they had a very generous GI Bill uh, after World War II. So I did. I sold the Army-Navy goods store. And... Uh, uh, I had a little income from it. I had $200 a month coming in from a note that uh, the buyer uh, uh, signed. 
And I went to the American Theater Wing. And I studied with some very good people. And I took a, a lot of things. I took playwriting and acting and directing the whole whole nine yards for, for theater. And I studied with some very good people, including uh, Lee Strasberg and Will Lee and, uh, uh, let's see, Thomas uh, Schnee, oh, Bill Kirkland, and uh, these names don't mean anything to you, do they? The first one did, but I'm sorry, I, I didn't, I'm not familiar with the other anyway, one. Anyway, no. they, they were important, uh, uh, kind of important. Uh, uh, it, it was a good level of, uh, of school. The school was great, and uh, they had a lot of good people on the scene back then. Yeah, they had uh, Jason Robard, and uh, Brando was around back then, and, and uh, a few people got that I got acquainted with in the uh, at the American Theater Wing, and uh, I I was there for the better part of three and a half years, and then I started making the rounds in the in the city, trying to get work as as an actor, and uh, that's a cruel cruel world out there when you're trying to make it to, as as an actor. Because for every job, there's roughly 10,000 people. So, uh, so the name of the game is, is rejection. Rejection after rejection. So talent isn't the biggest requirement. A thick skin is, is what you need. And that wasn't me. I was living in the village, Greenwich Village. There was a short interruption there when my folks were in an accident. And I had to go back to Indiana for a year and help out. And then I went back to, to New York and back to the American Theater Wing. But about 1954, I met a young lady in New York. And if you have to handpick the wrong uh, wrong young lady for me to pick out of, a, out of a crowd to live with, it's got to be this one. I won't mention names here, but she was a 19-year-old gorgeous uh, redhead from a uh, progressive family. Her father worked for, uh, what's the, uh, what was the Russian uh, press agency uh, there? TASS? What was that? Yeah, T-A-S-S? Yeah. TASS, yeah. He, and, uh, and she was uh, an erotic young lady, but we uh, had, uh, had a very colorful relationship for about three and a half years. And uh, after I was uh, trying to do some uh, writing at the time and couldn't make any connections, so I figured, well, well, shit, I'm, I'm going to open a theater here, and nobody's going to reject the kid anymore. And I said, now, what kind of a situation can I create here where I can uh, have a theater and a little income, too, to pay the rent? And uh, I didn't have much rent. I was living in the village in a terrific walk-up, uh, one-bedroom uh, apartment uh, with, a, with an eat-in kitchen. And I was paying $39.67 a month for it. That was on uh, Christopher Street, just off Sheridan Square. And uh, it was a dynamite apartment. And it was probably the best uh, deal I ever had in my life. And I should have held on to that apartment. Oh, well, should have. <laughs> you should have, yeah. And uh, 
So I started looking around for a premise to open up a uh, a uh, combination theater and coffee house. And I only had a couple thousand dollars to spend. And I found a place on Bleecker Street. The Bleecker Street then, well, are you familiar with the New York in the village? Yeah, I lived in New York for a year. Where did you live? Down in Tribeca. Oh, yeah. Well, you're, you're familiar with the village then, aren't you? Yeah, I am. You know Bleecker Street and, I do and McDougal Street, right? Well, back then in, in 1958, when I opened my first joint, Bleecker Street wasn't the Bleecker Street uh, you know today. As you go out on Bleecker Street, it was more like the Bowery. One uh, building there, I forget the name of the hotel, they turned it into a flop house where you could, uh, and there were some Bowery-like uh, bars there on uh, on Bleecker Street. And I found a premise there uh, for $200 a month. Originally, it was a place called the, uh, let's see, uh, Vatican City Religious Bookshop. <laughs> That's a riot. Uh, yeah. And it was loaded from top to bottom with, uh, you know, religious artifacts. <laughs> and they've had, had a ton, I mean, literally tons <laughs> of Art Deco uh, uh, pictures there. Huh. And, and uh, I, I took everything. The guy left uh, all this junk when he moved out. And uh, I had a mountain a mountain of Art Deco pictures. And I'll tell you how I put it together. I uh, got a few, uh, went over to the Bowery, and I bought uh, uh, some uh, a few pieces of uh, kitchen equipment like coffee urns and a little few uh, things uh, for a kitchen uh, that I jerry-rigged myself. I'm pretty good with, with my hands. And somebody... Uh, they tore down an office building not too far from where I was, and they had a couple of truckloads of this very heavy, thick uh, uh, vinyl, you know, that you generally find out in the hallways that they ripped up from the floor. And uh, I had them dump it on, on my premises, and I leveled the floor off, and I got myself one of those linoleum knives, and I cut it up, and I pieced it together. And uh, I put it down, and uh, that was my floor. Then I, I pulled in junk uh, tables and, and tear, uh, chairs from the streets. You know, people throw everything out in, in New York City. You can find anything on the street. And I pulled in three or four or five beaten-up old couches, and I refurbished them as much as I could. And I was out of money then, so I was sleeping there. I broke up with this chick that I'd lived with uh, for uh, for about three and a half years after a while. So I, I was uh, living in the uh, on the premises there, sleeping on one of those uh, junky old couches. And I had company there because my couches were at a premium. Yeah, they, they were one. Uh, I don't have to tell you about the village. You know, there a lot of crazies down there, and I was surrounded by crazies, and they, a lot of them needed a place to sleep at night, so I would select a few uh, uh, a few of the crazies to keep me company, 
and uh, you know with the uh, I you know uh, what went on down there and and I didn't I didn't miss uh, miss a trick while I was down there I uh, you know I I took all the trips and uh, we went around the block a, a lot of times so that's the way it all started and I called it the Cafe Theater Cock and Bull and I was going to do uh, Whatever I had a little area there where I was going to, uh, uh, you know, do some Im- improvisational theater. I had a little menu of coffee and concoctions and soft drinks and ice cream and uh, do the theater, my theater thing. And nobody was going to reject me anymore. And I opened up. And I did it all. I, I cleaned the toilets, and I mopped the floor, and I made the coffee and fried the hamburgers, and uh, and I slept there. And uh, I uh, I made sure the rent was paid. And that's about all that was coming in at the time, because uh, Bleecker Street at that time was no man's land. It was more like the Bowery than than it was the uh, the village. That that, that uh, you uh, you're familiar with, but I did survive, and uh, then uh, somebody, a guy by the name of Tommy Ziegler, a good friend of mine, who ran a place called the uh, uh, Figaro. It's right on the corner of uh, on the southeast corner of Bleecker and McDougal. They, uh, there was a premises on McDougal Street where I ultimately opened the, the Café Wa. You ever hear of the Café Wa? Well, it was in the basement, and it was originally a, a stable. And this was about two years after I opened uh, uh, my original place. And that uh, that was still there. My original place was, was still there. So they overlapped. And uh, the the uh, most interesting things I... I well, somebody gave me a beat-up uh, microphone and an amplifier for the original place, then my cafe theater, where I was cleaning the john. And uh, I didn't have any lights, any stage, any any sound, anything. And they gave me a beat-up amplifier and a, uh, and a microphone. And I built a little platform, put up one light, and the poet used to get up there. And the folkies uh, used to come in with their guitars and sit around and do their things. And on the weekends, I didn't do much business except on Friday and Saturday night. And you know you know the village on Friday and Saturday night. It's a mob scene down there. You know, all it's a tourist uh, uh, mecca and, and all the kids come in from all the borough, boroughs and, and the... Uh, and the bridge and tunnel crowd come in from from Jersey, and it's a mob scene. I remember one Saturday night, I took in five hundred dollars, and man, I was uh, oh, that was a big deal for me, and uh, that 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 was the that was the peak of my career. And then this uh, these premises came along in 1960. It was a stable downstairs on uh, McDougal Street, just below 3rd, between 3rd uh, and 
and a bleaker. And I looked at it, and for some reason, I I, I figured out uh, Tommy, Tommy Siegler. said, Manny, go take a look at this premise. They offered this to me, but, it, you know, it's a basement thing. I don't have any use for it. So I went to look at it. It had about uh, almost 3,000 square feet down there. But it was obviously still a stable. It had a, a, a trough running down the center of it, and it had a ramp running from the street down to the down to it. There, there was no entrance until this guy came along and bought the building, uh, opened up a, a theater, a street level, and he wanted to rent the basement out. But uh, who would want, want the friggin' basement? Nobody but some uh, an idiot like me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I went down there, and uh, he, he put a stairway down there. And uh, you talk about primitive. <laughs> you, you, I should have brought, you know, kept it as a stable. And I didn't know uh, what I was going to do with it. I thought it was going to be, I didn't plan this thing uh, out uh, way ahead. I didn't say, Manny, what you're going to do, you're going to open a showcase here for people who are going to become stars. I wasn't that bright. <laughs> well, probably if you had tried to, you wouldn't have been able to. Well, I was going to open, I thought, uh, I had an idea. I was going to open a place called the Slide-In Cafe, and I was going to put a slide <laughs> in. So, But uh, that was turned out to be against the law. Then I was going to put down in a combination paperback bookstore. I had somebody who was going to do the paperbacks, and I was going to do the coffee house. That made sense. You sit around, you know, like like Starbucks. So I was a little before my time. <laughs> well, I called in all my friends again, and I said, do your thing down here. You know, mainly the artists. And they didn't. We didn't have much to work with, but they all came up with something. They painted a lot of things on the walls and, and did a lot of weird, crazy things. And there, there was no particular theme. And that's why I called it the Cafe Wah. Because anybody who came in there, they stood at the door. And it was a wild scene, I'm telling you. They would look up there and they would say, what the fuck is this? <laughs> And that's why I called it the Cafe Wa. What I did, I took, uh, I didn't know I was creating a fire trap, but I took uh, rolls and rolls of burlap and I hung it from the ceiling because there was nothing but uh, uh, dirty rafters and pipes up there. And then I took uh, spray paints and sprayed the uh, burlap and uh, I'm telling you, it was a weird scene down there. So what I did, I bought a, oh, a dozen truckloads of scrap marble, you know, broken marble, chunks of discarded marble. And I got a few bags of concrete down there, and I got down on my hands and knees, and I laid that floor down there. And if you go down there today, that floor is still there. And the folkies would come in there. And the poets would come in there. And then I remember the first day I opened the Café Bois, I was expecting uh, 
you know, to make uh, make a lot of money. And it was a, a weekday. I think I opened on a Wednesday or a Thursday, and I made $8 the first day I opened. And uh, I had nothing to offer down there, except I spray-painted the uh, some signs up front, and they were weird, too. You know, it was all jerry-rigged. I had, uh, had the broken tables and chairs. And uh, on the weekend, the people started coming down. You know, the McDougal Street is a mob scene. I had, it looked like a colorful thing from the entrance. They started coming down, but I still didn't make a buck out of it because I didn't, I was still selling 35 cent coffee. And then we started with the poetry reading. And the poets wanted a place to read. So on the weekends, it started with the poets and the folkies would, would sit around and do, do their things. And that's the way it started. I finally I built a, a little platform, and then a light, and then a Janelle Cheapo a, a mic and amplifier, and then it just grew from there. And then uh, I started charging a quarter on the weekends. That's where most of the traffic was. And I raised it to a half a dollar, and there was no resistance. And I started to uh, may, you know make a little money. And I was happy with that. Then I raised it to a dollar. And that was a lot of money back then, back in the 60s. Uh, then I raised it to two dollars. And before you know it, it was up to three and four dollars, five dollars. And people were paying uh, to, just to get in. But by then, it, it grew exponentially, like, like Topsy. I uh, formalized the stage. I put in good lights, good sounds. I started booking the talent, and at first we would take up a collection because I couldn't uh, couldn't afford to pay the the entertainers. But after a while, after uh, I started charging a cover, then uh, I started paying the talent. We started out with uh, Lou Gossett and uh, Godfrey Cambridge. They came over from the Negro Ensemble uh, Theater back in the early sixties. And uh, Peter and Paul, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Peter and Paul uh, worked for me as as singles, as folk singers. Mary worked for me as a waitress. And Bob Dylan and uh, Lou Gossett uh, said, Manny, let's do a hootenanny. So I said, what the fuck's a hootenanny, Lou? And uh, he said, well, it's an open mic. You know, you invite wannabes in. And we did. And uh, and uh, uh, Dylan used to come in. I remember the first time he came in. He was just a kid. He wasn't Bob Dylan then. He was still Bobby Zimmerman. And I don't think he was out of his teens yet. But he said, Mr. Roth, he said, I'm new in town here. And he said, I don't have a place to, to sleep tonight. So I got up on the mic and I said, we have this new kid in town and he needs a place to crash tonight. And he's got a guitar. And somebody took him in, and he never forgot that. And he, he wrote about it in, in his book, when he did his book. Uh, Woody Allen and uh, uh, Bill Cosby, Richie Pryor, Jimi Hendrix, and uh, Tiny Tim was there, and uh, uh, Dino Valenti from the Quicksilver Messenger Service had 
and the love and spoonful, and uh, oh, there were a million kids. Lenny Bruce uh, was around. He didn't work my place, but uh, he occasionally would come in and do do something. I never booked him. There were a lot of characters around too, like Bodenheim and uh, and uh, Eugene O'Neill's son. I used to hang out with him. Uh, he was a drunk, but an interesting guy. And then uh, I knew uh, uh, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. Valerie Solanas, do you know who that is? <laughs> She's the gal who shot Andy Warhol. But she was one of the real crazies. And all the kids from the Warhol scene, like Johnny Brent and uh, oh, Lou Reed. and uh, I had everything down there, you name it. Whatever was happening in New York. I had steel drums down there. I had a, I had a mixed bag. I had, uh, I had a hypnotist down there. I had gospel. I had jazz. I had Tiny Tim. I had. Uh, well, I understand. Uh, speaking of Richard Pryor, that you were Richard Pryor's first agent, and that you had to bail him out of jail once. I remember he, a heck, somebody was heckling him, and he jumped off the stage and stabbed the guy with a fork. One story about uh, about Pryor. They, they booked him on The Tonight Show. Well, I was with him at his very first TV gig. Uh, it was the Rudy Valley Show. And I went with Pryor to the first Tonight Show. And there was another guy by the name of Pryor. Uh, let's see. Uh, something Pryor who did uh, some comedy drawings. But when uh, Carson... Uh, uh, you know, Carson did his uh, monologue, and then he said, tonight we have so-and-so and so-and-so. And he, he said, uh, we've got this guy, let's see, he said, he didn't call him Richard, he called, called him the other guy's name. I, I forgot, Danny or, or Randy or, say, let's say Randy Pryor. Okay. So, But he got his name wrong. So uh, Pryor came out. Now, you got to remember this was, Back in, in, in the uh, late 60s, that was a different time uh, era back then. And Pryor was scared and ner nervous, of course. And But he went out there, and uh, 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 Carson tried to make him comfortable. And uh, the first thing Richie said, he said, you got my name wrong. <laughs> he, he said, <laughs> and Carson went along with it, and he said, well, what do what do they call you? And, and Pryor says, "Well, they most of my friends call me that crazy the N word." Oh no! And there, it was like all the air went out out of the room. <laughs> and then it was the count of about ten, and the room just exploded. <laughs> I mean, they never heard anything like that. Yeah, yeah. If you ever get a chance to see that. Uh, that first Richard Pryor clip, uh, uh, that's the way he started out. And from there, you know, he started to gain reputation. And uh, But he did really didn't become the Richie Pryor that you know until he freaked out in Vegas about 10 years after he started. I remember once he, he worked for me for about a couple of years, and uh, he was okay. He was okay. And I used to try to book him at other places. And I took him uh, to a place called The Living Room, also on McDougal Street. 
and Pryor got up there, and uh, he was kind of confident at the time. And he introduced me, and he said, you know, one of these generic things, everything I am, I owe to this guy over here. Uh, you know, I'm working today because, and I love him, and so on and so on. Then he bombed. <laughs> so we walked out with our tails between our legs. I, I opened another comedy club at the top of the village gate in, 19, uh, in the 80s, late 80s. And I had all, all the kids you see on the tube now, including Seinfeld and uh, Ray Romano and Leary, uh, uh, Dennis Leary. Uh, but the best one of all, I'll tell you, was a guy by the name of Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks. He wasn't anything like Lenny uh, Bruce, but he, he, was, he was the best of the lot. And poor Bill died in his early 30s of lymphoma. And I'll tell you, if you want, want to get more, uh, check Letterman. Yeah, Letterman loved him, too. He had him on the uh, uh, Letterman show. I want to ask you, um, I know that some of your stories, some of the ones maybe you've told us and some other ones, can be found in the autobiography of David Lee Roth. Why are you in David Lee Roth's book? Oh, well, he's my brother's kid. I'm his <laughs> uncle. <laughs> I knew that. He seems like he's a pretty wild and crazy guy. Well, he is pretty wild, but he's got, he's got, he's got, he's, uh, you know, he wouldn't carry the name Ross and he wouldn't be my brother's kid if he didn't have, have a head on his shoulders. He's a, he's a smart kid too. And he's not one of these kids who's going to end up broke. Yeah. He's a wild and crazy kid because it's, uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's the image. And uh, he, he'll tell me, he says, Uncle Manny, it's all, all hype. But he is good. He's, you know, he's great at what he does. And uh, that uh, I went to see him uh, during uh, his uh, most recent tour at Staples. And I went back to uh, uh, see him. And I still find him awesome. He's uh, I told him, I said, it was like the second coming. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, you go, I mean, when they, he re, reunited with uh, Eddie and, uh, and uh, Van Halen, I'm telling you, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I, I went backstage and he wasn't receiving any, anybody. My wife and I walked in, there wasn't anybody there. And, uh, because I think understand the situation with he and Eddie is still kind of sensitive. So uh, they, they, he plays it with kid gloves, and uh, he he doesn't uh, he doesn't entertain anybody after the concert. But uh, my wife and I went back to see him, and I said I told him I I, <laughs> I said kid I said it's one thing to be be uh, you know the uncle of a rock rock star. It's another, another to be the uncle of the Messiah. I said, you could, now which is, and are you really the second coming here? And he just, we laughed it up a little bit. And then, then, I, then I left. But it was incredible, just friggin' incredible to see that scene there. But then on, 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 on a different note, I made a ton of money and I was the king of the hill. And then at the end, I lost it all. Mm. 
I mean, one day I'm sitting on top of the friggin' hill, and the next day I'm on my ass at the bottom looking up. It was all gone. I was broke, in trouble, in litigation, strung out. I had three kids without a home, a broken marriage, and in litigation up to my, up to my elbows. So on that note, if you want to pick up at another time, <laughs> I, I, I had to start climbing back up the mountain again. I'm only 89. One of these days I'll be discovered. <laughs> I'm still looking to be discovered here. Many Roth, thank you so much. <laughs> it's been nice talking to you, Andy. Likewise. This has been episode number 12 of the Andy's Treasure Trove podcast. All rights reserved by Andy Moore and Treasure Trove Productions. I'd like to thank my new muse and future guest, Candace Roberts, for her music on today's episode. And of course, many thanks to Manny Roth, who was very kind to participate in my show, and to Michael Zucker and Brandon Roth, who helped me connect with Manny. Next time, on episode 13, we'll be talking to singer Richard Conrad about a completely different part of the entertainment spectrum. Richard is a performer of quote-unquote serious music from the 17th, 18th, and early 19th centuries. Richard has recorded classical albums with people like Joan Sutherland and Marilyn Horn, and he'll also be telling us some stories about his humorous encounters with people as diverse as Noel Coward and Adlai Stevenson. So be sure to listen to the next episode of Andy's Treasure Trove, coming soon, I promise. Meanwhile, please visit andystreasuretrove.com. I've added lots of new things to the site, and I think you'll enjoy it. Bye for now. There's big fat garbage coming out of your mouth. There's big fat garbage coming out of your mouth. There's big fat garbage coming.